Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey everyone, thanks for joining My Rock Moment today. Okay, so while this season is focused on 60s and 70s rock in California, we're going to be jumping across the pond today and we're going to discuss the Rolling Stones. We'll be talking with well-known journalist and best-selling biographer Leslie Ann Jones. She's interviewed many of the world's most loved artists, from Mick Jagger to Paul McCartney to Madonna to Prince, just to name a few. And she's written a new book, The Stone Age, 60 Years of the Rolling Stones. So we'll be deep diving into the band today. We're going to be discussing these seemingly infallible men, and we'll take a look at their past with the lens of today. Leslie Ann has seen it all, and she's got quite an interesting perspective on the band. So let's get started. Leslie Ann, thank you for coming on My Rock Moment today. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. All right. So for everybody listening, I'm here with author, journalist, and presenter Leslie Ann Jones. Leslie Ann, you have had a prolific career, I would say, as a journalist, and you've written a number of notable books, which I'm sure many who are listening have read, including David Bowie Hero, Bohemian Rhapsody, the definitive biography of Freddie Mercury, which I'm sure was a very interesting one to write. And then in 2020, Who Killed John Lennon? The Lives, Loves, and Deaths of the Greatest Rock Star came out. It did, yes. That was um, that was a torn order, that one. I'm sure. Uh, John Lennon, that's a, that's a whole life story, isn't it? I mean, it's it was a tragedy waiting to happen uh, for the 40 years of his life. And uh, he did only get to live half his life, of course. So we have that in mind all the time when we think or or talk about John Lennon, that it was we we know the ending, uh, as as we do with all the rock stars ha- who have died. Um, the difference between those books and the Stone Age was that they're all, apart from 
uh, Brian Jones, who founded the band, and also Charlie Watts, who sadly died last year. Yes. They're all still alive. So that's mm-hmm. a completely different approach when, when it comes to writing a biography. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. And this book, your new book, The Stone Age, 60 Years of the Rolling Stones, comes out August 2nd. It's perfect timing. I mean, they are going to be in the throes of their European tour, still going strong. Yes, we've lost Charlie, but I mean, the band is, it's, they're out there just they're as much there. as ever. And Mick, <laughs> Mick will be 79 years of age um, at that time. And also uh, Keith Richards is coming up 79 in December. Ronnie Wood is 75. So, you know, that, that is an old band and people are asking all the time, how do they do it? Well, I think Mick realized some years ago that if he was going to stay the course, he had to tidy himself up, so quit the drugs and the booze and and start training like an Olympic athlete, which he yes. still does. I'm told he runs nine miles a day backstage on performance days. And for a man of his age, you'd have to say that's incredible. I'm also told that they have some uh, doctors on tour with them and uh, they get all the help they need, let's say, before they go out there. Um, these are elderly gentlemen but there's no reason why they shouldn't still be playing rock and roll. There's no reason. And, you know, you had written um, The Rolling Stones, and I want to read this because it, it's it's interesting and it's true. You'd said, the Rolling Stones are still roaming the globe like rusty tanks without a war to go to. Jumping, jacking, flashing, posturing. These septuagenarian characters with faces that might have been microwaved, but coming on like eternal 30-year-olds. It's what they do, isn't it? I mean, from a distance, you'd think that's a bunch of teenagers up there, but you get up close and you can actually see what you're dealing with. These are your granddads. These yes. are, I mean, these, in, in some cases, they are great grandfathers. Mm-hmm. And it's important to always be mindful of that, but also not to be disrespectful because no one said that someone had to give up rock and roll at a certain age. Pete Townsend was the one from The Who who said, hope I die before I get old. But he didn't die and he did get old and he's still doing it as well. Isn't that the irony? You get older and you realize not much has changed. Your body might look different, but if your mind's still there and the desire to feel that crowd, to, um, you know, ingratiate yourselves to a new audience and share your music, the Stones will forever be popular. I mean, their breadth of work is incredible. And and speaking to that, there have been countless films and, you know, films made, books written about the Stones, but this book has a very different angle, a very different viewpoint. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Of course. Um, Most rock biographies are written by men. Most rock writers are male. And they tend to have a certain approach, which is that secretly they all want to be rock stars. They all had posters of these guys on their bedroom walls and they all looked up to them. They all played guitar or drums or whatever it is. And they all have that private desire to have been one of them. So there is that hero worship in men. Uh, There are a few female rock writers around and I don't think anybody else is taking the same approach as I do which is that I dig very deeply psychologically into the characters back into their childhoods I excavate their family lives when they were little to try and find out what the dysfunction was 
of what was missing, what was the void, because there always is one with a rock star. They, they have this in common. There is always a void to fill. And that is why they go into rock and roll. And it doesn't, in some cases, take very much digging to find out what it is. And yeah, Brian Jones was an incredibly interesting, fascinating uh, character study for me to do because there was so much that he was trying to compensate for. And he, of course, founded the band. Now, yes. very many people don't know these days that he even existed. I have three adult children. None of them had heard of Brian Jones. Who's Brian Jones? What's he got to do with anything? So, well, he founded the band. Yeah, well, they never say anything about that. And no, they don't. Every time they go out on stage, there's an opportunity to pay homage to their founder. They never mention him. And I think there may be some guilt attached there because Brian was forced out of the band in 1969 by Mick and Keith, primarily. And he subsequently drowned in his swimming pool. Right. And I think that there must be some responsibility there among these men, if they ever dare to think back. Did he do that deliberately because we made him leave the band? Uh, yeah, but he was drugged and, and drunk out of his mind half the time. Was he that way because of the way they were treating him? But they were young guys. Brian was only 27 when he died. And so, of course, became a founder member of the 27 Club, so-called, yeah. which is a whole string of rock stars who seem to have died at that age, which um, includes Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin and Amy Winehouse. And uh, it's a strange club to belong to, isn't it, that? But, but there is no marking of Brian's importance to, to the greatest rock and roll brand in the world, as I call them. They're not just a band anymore. They're a brand. And Brian was a significant contributor to that. But they never speak about him. Yeah, I, and I have noticed that. And it's funny as, you know, I um, grew up in a house that were big Rolling Stones fans. And I don't think... Brian came into my sphere of reference <laughs> until about 15 years ago. You start looking at older pictures from the 60s, you know, rock and roll circus. Who is that guy? And not that he didn't make a mark. He was the one, like you said, that was the founder, which probably contributes to even more guilt. Um, but you can understand where they would want to bury that, just as maybe they bury other memories like Altamont. Oh, I'm sure. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah, there's a lot of blood on. on on their hands, especially when it comes to the death of Meredith Hunter at Altamont, as you've just said, um, a young man died. They didn't kill him, not directly, but they contributed to his death by hiring the Hells Angels as their security guards that day, who were out of control, drunk, unruly, and violent. And he was murdered. I think what they are guilty of is having put that film out as entertainment. And we've all seen that film and it's easily accessible online, you might go so far as to describe it as a snuff movie because somebody's death is used as entertainment. This guy is killed on film. Mm -hmm. And I've read conflicting stories, um, you know, about that time from, you know, around 1969 and then subsequent to that, that, you know, some of the band members were somewhat oblivious to um, the severity of the issue and uh, that Mick was absolutely distraught. Yeah, he wanted they, to potentially walk away at that they point. Were, they obviously were horrified, but then you see subsequent footage of him watching the rushes 
of that film and sort of rolling bits back and forward and having another look. And the actual moment of the murder is seen twice in footage and it's freely available. Yeah. So there has to be some, some guilt attached to that. Of course. The other, the other aspect of, of the way I work is that um, I'm taking a woman's overview, a woman's viewpoint. So in an era of Me Too and Time's Up, when we don't tolerate the way certain men have treated women traditionally down the years, and certain men have abused and sexually abused and used women in other ways, uh, the Stones have pretty much been guilty of all of that in their time, it's sex and drugs and rock and roll. So how do we equate their popularity in the modern world to the kind of lives that they've lived? Why do we still revere this band when we know so much about their past? Uh, whereas other guys are being arrested for, uh, for having done similar things. It didn't kind of really add up for me. So I wanted to examine that. And a large part of the book is, is examining our collective psyche as to why we worship this band, knowing the sort of thing they've perpetrated all the way down the years. And why do you think that this band has come out relatively unscathed while so many of their peers, you know, have been essentially thrown to the fire, so to speak? I think it's about longevity. And I'm often asked, what is the secret to their longevity? Well, it is their longevity. That is the secret. They've been around so long that they are as essential a part of our British culture. I know that they're global, but they are in the first place British. And they are as important to us as Her Majesty the Queen. They've been around forever. So they are part of the culture. And it's much more than the music, which is a soundtrack to all our lives. But those songs are indelible. So you go to any wedding reception and you have a mixed age party afterwards and everybody hits the dance floor and they're leaping about to Jumping Jack, Flash, Honky Tonk Women, Brown Sugar, Satisfaction, all the rest of it. Everybody knows the tunes. Everybody knows the words. And those songs are not going away. They sound as fresh today as when they were written and recorded. So I think it's that. Really, we are doing that thing of dividing the art from the artists. And there have been many, many examples of that all through the ages. If we dig into the private lives of any of the great artists, visual artists, musicians, uh, all artists of all kinds, you'd find things that are not palatable. And so you have to say, well, does the art stand alone? And in the case of the Rolling Stones, it really does. It's something that we can worship, something that we can be part of, without actually having to know too much about them. You're right, because we, th we throw away that band, you know, and maybe that's not the right way of saying it, but we go ahead and we throw away that band. We throw away a lifetime of memories. We throw away part of our culture. That's right. What's interesting is that we know the stories, really. We know the, we know the history. We know that Mick has a terrible reputation with women, that he's treated his ladies 
so incredibly badly. And he's left wreckage throughout his life. He's even denied paternity of children that were obviously his and whom he now acknowledges. Uh, we know all this about Mick. Uh, and yet he gets up on stage and he does his Mick Jagger thing and the whole stadium goes wild. So there is a divorce between uh, the image and the knowledge, if you like. Mm -hmm. And what's at stake in the end? People say, well, he's a brilliant singer. Well, no, he's not. He's not a great singer, actually. He's a character singer. <laughs> there's, there's a, it's, it's almost adopting a style. They started out copying their great blues artists from, from your wonderful country in the first place. And this was how they developed their own style and began to write their own songs. But everything is in homage to the blues, which mm -hmm. is where they came in. And the blues we know is the roots of American music. This is Afro-American music at, at its very heart. And so Mick's voice, we would have to say, is an impersonation of genuine blues voices. It's not actually his voice at all. Mm -hmm. Well, I wish I was a captain Women in a deep blue sea I would have all you good-looking women fishing we have, we have an expression here which is... Uh, taking coals to Newcastle, meaning that we take something back to where it originated from in the first place. And this is what the British invasion did. It brought America's music back to America. Mm -hmm. It's repackaged for a new era, for a new age, but it was essentially your music in the first place. Right, right. With the help of those canard yanks coming over and, you know, <laughs> sharing the new albums and all of that. And you know, and speaking of crafting the stones, you know, going back to the women um, and their viewpoint, I, there are the women that they dated. And, you know, you mentioned that the girlfriends, the wives that we so famously know, like Jerry Hall, Bianca Jack or Patty Hansen. But there were the earlier girlfriends like Marianne Faithful and definitely Anita Pallenberg that uh, shaped the band, their style, their music, their brand as we know it now, in a sense. Um, you know, I think they've been kind of relegated to the status of muses in, in quite a bit that you read. But that moniker, um, it definitely seems to go hand in hand with these women. But they were so much more than that. Oh, they contributed a huge amount, especially Anita Pallenberg, who you've mentioned, who was this exotic creature uh, born in Italy. She had German, Swedish, Swiss blood roots. She was a film actress. She was part of that whole Roman Dolce Vita era. And she met the Stones in Germany. They were just a little bunch of oiks, a band of tykes when she got <laughs> hold of them. But she had this wonderful style and she brought all of her dress sense and her fashion knowledge and she restyled them in much the same way as Angie Bowie did much further down the line with David Bowie. You know, yeah. he couldn't give it away for 10 years. <laughs> Along comes Angie into his life, and she created him into this wondrous exotic creature. And she got no credit for that. After their marriage ended and she was thrown out, we had that uh, exhibition that toured the world, David Bowie Is. And I saw it. I was amazed. She wasn't mentioned anywhere in that. The same as, as Anita isn't credited for having brought so much to the Stones, whereas 
one or two former managers of the Stones have said, well, Anita was the Stones. You know, she was part of the band. She contributed as much as they did in terms of how we regard them today. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important, and I've tried to do this, is bring those, those females back into the fore and say, look, you know, before these, before Marianne Fagel, before Anita, before this one and that one, they were nothing. They were just starting out. They had to be locked in the kitchen by their second manager, Andrew Lou Golden, and told you're not coming out until you write me some songs because you can't carry on doing cover versions forever. You're never going to progress. And it just so happened that Mick and Keith found their chemistry. Keith with his riffs and his, his little chorus licks and so on, and Mick with his lyricism. Now, where did that come from? Because you can put any two musicians into a room and say, write songs. Most of them won't be able to. That chemistry doesn't exist. But with Mick and Keith, they'd known each other since they were really little boys. So there was almost a brotherly blood link between them. They had the same references. They came from the same town. They went to the same school. They bantered among the same guys. They spoke the same shorthand. And they had the same cultural references. And they gelled. There was that chemistry. And all throughout their career, throughout their lives, They've had their huge fallings out, which is very much a sibling rivalry thing, isn't it, really? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, during the 80s, people say, why didn't the Stones perform at Live Aid? Well, they did, but not together. So Mick and Keith were having one of their huge feuds at the time. So Mick did a famous duet, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas Dancing in the Streets with uh, David Bowie, which was a video that was shown uh, but they didn't perform live. Across in Philadelphia, you had Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood performing with Bob Dylan so incredibly badly that that footage is never shown because they didn't want it to be. Uh, but what we didn't have was the Stones United on stage, which would have taken it up a notch. But you were never going to get those two in the same room at the same time at that point. They've always made up in the end because it's all about the money, ultimately. And they're a very commercially driven band. And they've always been about making a fortune. So, they, yes, they would regroup and they'd go out on another tour. Oh, you, the Stones are back on another last ever tour. We've had about 13 of those now. <laughs> and every year I think it will be their last. Yeah, well, yeah. it's going to be at some point. This could be the last time. We've just lost Charlie. Anything can happen. Keith yeah. Richards, he's always said, well, when will the Stones be over? When I drop down dead live on stage, as it were. But I think we, we would all, in a, in a macabre way, we'd like to see that because that would be that this sort of, uh, his, his, uh, he would be living his own dream to yes. die with his boots on, to die on stage with a guitar in his hands. That would be the ultimate in rock and roll. A very poetic ending. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Okay, guys, let's get back to the interview. But you mentioned Andrew Lou Golden, and I know that he was part of this whole book as you were writing it. You tried a number of times to go see him in Colombia in the jungles of Colombia. Is that true? Yeah, it is. Uh, I tracked him down 
And he responded. He's um, an eccentric character. I can imagine. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, a, a bit of Peruvian marching powder might have found its way into his brain over the years. And uh, he's known for being erratic and unpredictable. And I thought either he's going to be really fierce and tell me to go away in not a very nice way, or we might strike up a dialogue. I obviously called him on a good day. And we corresponded for quite a long time. And in the end, I said, look, I'd, I'd really like to come and see you because it would make much more sense. It's much better face to face. If I can see your expressions, you can see mine. And I'm sure we'll, we'll have a really good conversation about what, what I would ask you to contribute to this book. It just happened that we were in a pandemic and they weren't allowing any Brits into Colombia at the time. I couldn't get dispensation from the British Home Office to go. And as he also said, even if you got here to take the trek uh, up into the jungle five hours into the woods where I live, he said he'd probably get shot. So if, if I were you, he said, in fact, he said, I'm not taking responsibility for that. Let's just do it like this. So that's what we did. And did he have quite a bit to contribute? He really did. Yeah, he brought great insights because he was there. And there's no substitute for somebody who was there, who knew those personalities. What he did say was, I don't know the Stones. I don't know who they are today. I knew who they were. And they're completely different animals now. They've turned into something that I might not necessarily, you say, I can't say not approve of, because who am I not to approve of them, but, but who I don't necessarily recognize. They are something else. They are a, a commercial entity now. And it's all about commercialism. That's what's kept them going. You go along to a Stones gig, you have done so yourself. And you don't want to hear some song that Mick and Keith are working on in somebody's bedroom last week. You want to hear the hits. You want to hear the soundtrack. You want to hear the songs from the, the late 60s through the 70s and slightly into the 80s. But it sort of stops there. It crystallized as a band sound. And was there ever a point at which they thought and discussed, okay, um, this is how we sound. This is who we are. If we try and fix something that isn't broken, we might ruin it. So we might just as well uh, continue in this vein now, because these are the songs those guys want to hear out there. So let's make it easy on ourselves. It's almost as though they sat around a table and decided not to write any more music in case they spoiled the legacy. <laughs> Which I understand. I do as I well. Yeah. At this point, people are coming out to hear those hits, you know, and I think David Crosby said, he made a great line. You get to a point where you just turn the smoke, smoke screen on and you play the hits. I think that's it. And they're old guys, you know. So why make it difficult? If, you, if you're trying to learn a new song, I don't know about you, but even at this stage for me, to learn something new is really difficult. It's not like when you're young, you can absorb and take on board anything. Somebody asks you to learn a few lines of dialogue to present something to camera. Oh, you can do that in a heartbeat in your 20s and 30s. But get into your 40s and 50s, and that becomes increasingly difficult because the memory is short, especially if you've been, as they have been, dependent on Class A drugs for large, large yes. chunks of your existence. 
Yeah, no, and that's a that's a big factor right there. I mean, these guys are pushing 80. The fact that they're even still alive, let alone performing, I think astounds everybody. And take Keith Richards, who not very many years ago was on holiday and dropped off a branch of a tree and knocked himself on the head, wound up having emergency uh, brain surgery in New Zealand. That's got to be another chunk of your memory gone, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. So let's let's make it easy on ourselves, guys. Let's play what we know. Mm-hmm. I think they always had an intent to make it to 60 years. You know, you, you get to 57, 58, you're going, guys, if we can do this, let's keep going. Let's let's end on a high note. Let's end at 60 years. I don't know what they're thinking, but I think it would be a good time. I don't think they'll quit, though. I, I think there's an arrogance there. There is a... It won't have been a, a specifically decided, arranged, contracted thing, rock till we drop. But I don't <laughs> think Mick is ever going to admit to his age. In his head, he's 12 years old and he's going to carry on as long as he can. Now, we know from past experience that he can't really have a solo career. He tried. He put out a few albums, never really worked. Keith had more success as a solo artist. But what people want to see is them together. You can't even really say, let's go see the Stones, because there's only two of them left of the original lineup. The original. And so that's not really the Stones. Paul McCartney's still alive. Ringo Starr still is. So you could argue that the Beatles could go out on tour because they've got two original members as well. But without John Lennon, without George Harrison, that ain't the Beatles. And you could argue the same thing about the Rolling Stones, but they're not listening. Not listening. (laughs) Well, you know, as long as they continue to be around, as long as they continue to tour, they're going to garner new fans, and that's that's just the way it is, and that's what they want. It's so it's ridiculous, isn't it? Really, but you go to a Stones gig, you've got babies crawling around in the auditorium, you've got grandparents, you've got every age group in between, and everybody's got a Stones story of some kind. Everybody has been touched indirectly or directly by the Stones at some point in their lives. We like to say in London, we all know somebody who knows somebody who slept with Mick Jagger. Everybody seems to know somebody who's been there. Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) you know, when it came to making lists, I made lists of uh, all the, the sort of major encounters. And I had to restrict Mick's list to celebrity names because there were just so many of them. There were thousands. of this book or in the writing of this book did you in any way consult with the band talk with the band I spoke to Bernard Doherty who is their long-serving PR and got in touch and I said hey Bernard you know I've been contracted to do this book um any chance of any interviews with the principals he said Leslie Ann how long have you known me you know better than to ask I said Bernard if I didn't ask I wouldn't be doing the job properly But actually, did I really want to talk to them? No, because then you are influenced by what they want you to say. And more importantly, what they don't want you to say. And I wanted a free reign on this. 
Uh, this book is my opinion. It's my viewpoint. It's it's the number of people that I've managed to squirrel out of the woodwork who've brought things to the table that haven't been told before. So, for example, I, I found a guy called Stuart White, who was um, the West Coast correspondent of the News of the World. It used to be the biggest selling tabloid in England. Uh, it's closed down now. Rupert Murdoch owned it, but it closed down after a scandal. And um, Rupert Murdoch, ironically, who is now married to Jerry Hall, who was not really married to Mick Jagger, even though she gave him four children. So, so how those circles go round and round. Stuart attended the funeral of Brian Jones. I didn't have anybody else who was actually there on that day. And it was incredible to get um, an eyewitness account from someone who stood beside that grave and saw that coffin go in and had dialogue with Brian's parents and his sister and his girlfriend and various other people who were there on the day. Because the account that Bill Wyman, the bassist at the time, gave was that the press behaved really badly at that funeral. According to Stuart, the press were the best behaved on the day. So there are two sides to every story. Actually, there are three. There's his, hers, and the truth. Mm -hmm. Somebody said to me yesterday, is it fair to judge the stones on the moors of today? And I think it's not a question of judging them, but it's about looking at their whole lives and their whole careers and having a peek into their, their consciences, if you like. Mm -hmm. How do they feel about, do, do they never go there? Do they just exist in denial? Have they just drawn a line under every decade in which extraordinary things happened all the time? And have they just put that on the back burner and allowed it to fester? Do they ever dare to go back there themselves and think, oh, you know, actually that wasn't so good and we got away with it? Because they have got away with an awful lot. And now you, in the past, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have had the opportunity to go on tour with them, to interview them one-on-one. -on -one. Is, that, is that accurate? I was a music journalist and I did cover their tours. I have seen them several times live. You never get that close on the road. And they do have their separate entourages. This is quite interesting. They, they have separate camps. So Mick has his kind of camp and then there's, there's sort of Keith and the roadies and the rest of the band and the backing vocalists and so on. And they were sort of divided, especially at the time when Mick was with Loren Scott his girlfriend of about 14 years. And um, she wasn't very well liked among the rest of the band. So Mick and Loren tended to keep themselves to themselves. But of course, Mick being Mick, he went off and found another girlfriend. And although it was denied that he was seeing somebody else at the time Loren took her own life, tragically, uh, we know that he'd already met the ballerina Melanie Hamrick in Japan. And um, I think only about 30 months after Loren died, their baby together was born. And that's Mick's eighth child called Deborah. So, yeah, you can hide stuff to a point these days, but there are cameras on every corner. There is social media. There's Twitter. There's Facebook. There's Instagram. There's everything looking at you nowadays. And I think a lot of the things they, they did get away with before they certainly wouldn't be getting away with now. Of course not. Of course not. 
This proves to be a fascinating read, Leslie Ann. <laughs> Hold on tight. Those... <laughs> Having said all that, it may sound as though I'm criticizing them as individuals and as a band, but I've been very careful to, to pay homage to the music, which is the most important aspect of their legacy. But to understand the music, you have to understand the individuals who made it. And it felt to me as though there'd never really been a conclusive overview as to who those individuals are, those specific people. Who were they behind the rock stars? I don't want to know about the rock stars per se. I want to know who they were as men and as boys and why they became the creatures that they did become. Yeah. Yeah. And I I dare say this book uh, answers that. I hope well, it does. I hope so. <laughs> and Leslie, and I have to ask you, because you're here, and because of the premise of my show, My Rock Moment, um, you know, I asked guests, what was the moment, the music moment, the rock and roll moment that made them, that made them say, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, that made them forever fans of a band or an album? And I have to ask you the same thing. What was it that made you decide you know what? I'm going to go down this road in music. Where I came in, goodness. Ah, I was a kid. I was at school. And uh, there were the moon landings in 1969. July 1969, man walked on the moon. Yeah. And we have the BBC in this country. The BBC used as its soundtrack um, a song called Space Oddity by David Bowie. And he'd been trying so hard to, to make it for about a decade and couldn't get anything to stick. And then suddenly they picked up this track and they used it on television for all the moon landing coverage. And we went berserk at school because he was ours. He lived up the road. Uh, we lived in the same town. And we he used to play in the library gardens in Bromley and Kent. And uh, we used to go there after school and, and sort of hang around and see him playing his guitar. And, he was oh, just wow. a sort of a desperately trying to make it a wannabe at that point. And so then suddenly his name is everywhere. And we had to find out where he lived because that's what kids are like. You know, you, you know that somebody <laughs> lives in your town. You've got to find out where they, they live. Yeah. Interestingly, we had this peripatetic art teacher um, called Owen Frampton. He was the father of, of Peter Frampton, who was also quite a famous artist at that time. And we did manage to find out that David Bowie lived on South End Road in Beckenham. So we used to go to the Market Square, the, the Market Square he wrote about in his songs, get on the 227 bus, go down to Beckenham, walk up South End Road and knock on his door. And Angie used to answer the door and she would give us signed 10-8 photographs and say, off you go, home to your mothers. Wow. I, I said to my friend Natasha one day, she's going to be out and he is going to answer the door and he's going to have us in for tea. And that's what happened. That is really what happened. We were just these little schoolgirls in our uniforms. And I remember sitting in his Christmas colored room with all this red velvet furniture and bottle green walls. And his bedroom had a silver ceiling. You sort of saw it as you walked past. And I came from a house that had neck curtains and crocheted covers on the toilet rolls on the window ledge, you know, very <laughs> ordinary kind of suburban home. And I thought to myself, I have to grow up and be with people like this. But how? I wasn't musical. I wasn't artistic. I had nothing that was going to bring me to that party. But my father was a sports journalist. And he went on the road all the time with the cricketers and footballers and, and lived this 
crazy life crashing around all over the world. And I, the pennies dropped. I thought, I can do that. I could go on the road with bands and write about them. And so I knew that from such a young age when I was still in my junior school. That's what I'm going to grow up and, and be. And somehow I did it. And you did it. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> so we kind of have David Bowie to thank for that. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah. And um, I, it was interesting because I did grow up to become a, a journalist. I did interview him several times and he did remember me. And oh. I think he remembered me because I was nearly bald at the time. I'd had this this terrible surgery. My hair had all fallen out as a result. And I used to wear these little berries to cover up my my baldness and I think it was my scalp that he remembered other than my face but I ran into him in Paris in a restaurant and uh, he said oh you again and after that I was in New York quite often pre-internet covering stories and I bumped into him downtown a few times and we ended up having the odd lunch and the odd dinner and in the end he had a house in Mystique uh, which I think most people know he had a house there after he married Iman, I don't think she was really interested in that house because it wasn't a house that she had created. And uh, it was part of his past, so he sold it. But before he did, he offered the place to a few people he knew to just go down and hang out. And he gave me the keys one day and said, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm researching a book about Freddie Mercury. He said, go down to the house, do it down there. And I slept in his bed. Oh, come on. The only, the only thing missing was him. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, well, you can't have everything. You can't. You, you came pretty darn close. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. That view out of his bedroom window of St. Vincent across the sea there. And I, I remember lying there thinking, David Bowie wakes up to this view. And here I am. Here I yeah. am waking up to the same view. Yeah. And he's given me the keys. <laughs> he gave me the keys, yeah. And people say, oh, come on, that never happened. And I have the photographs to prove it. So, you know, yes, it did. So, yes, it did. Yeah. <laughs> so there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Leslie, this was so much fun. This was so much fun. Um, I'm going to put a link to the book in the show notes so everybody can, you know, buy it uh, where it's available. So I appreciate you coming on and talking a little bit about it and sharing your viewpoint. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks. All right, a big thank you to Leslie Ann Jones for coming on My Rock Moment today. Now, while I highly recommend this book, I also encourage you to check out Leslie Ann's other books, including her memoir, Tumbling Dice. She has led quite a storied life. Now, I'm going to put all these links in the show notes, so be sure to check them out. All right, guys, thanks for listening, and don't forget to do all the things. Subscribe, rate, follow me on Instagram at LA Woman Rocks, and we will see you at the next episode. Yeah.